The Unbiased Podcast, Your Money, Your Future, is recorded at Exchange, 22 Bishopsgate, London, and powered by Copus. Hello, I'm Karen Barrett, CEO and founder of unbiased.co.uk, and this is the Unbiased Podcast, available to listen to completely free from wherever you find your great audio experiences. Unbiased.co.uk has a range of really useful calculator tools to help you plan your pension or mortgage. Head online now and try them out. Welcome to season two of Your Money, Your Future, where we'll delve into the details of business success and failure and meet a host of fascinating guests who have succeeded against all the odds. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Elaine Pofelt, an independent journalist and speaker who specializes in entrepreneurship and careers. Elaine, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. It is great to be here. So Elaine, let's talk about your latest book, Tiny Business, Big Money. What gave you the idea to write it and how will people benefit from having a read of it? My first book, Karen, was The Million Dollar One Person Business. And I looked at solopreneurs who had gotten to seven-figure revenue on their own. And what I found, I updated the book in 2021. And when I spoke to the entrepreneurs, some of them apologized to me and said, Elaine, I'm no longer a solopreneur. I've added my first employee. And I said, why are you apologizing? That's awesome news. And when I got to talking with them, what I found was many of them were struggling with this transition to being the leader of a team. Mm-hmm. Even if it was a team of two or three virtual assistants, yeah, uh, you know, or customer service people, whatever um, type of talent they needed, or they were adding employees, and that was a whole other transition. And I thought, wow, there could be a lot of value in helping people to understand how to make this transition while still keeping the freedoms that motivated us all to start our own businesses in the first place. So it's a whole different skill set, isn't it? The minute you start having to manage someone else, it's not just about the idea and getting traction. You've got other people to consider. Oh, it's completely different. And you can really become a bottleneck if you aren't communicating with your team, if you don't have some sort of regular rhythms where you bring the team together, you can really lose a lot in the business. You can lose your freedom. And so okay. I thought, how, how do they do this while keeping the freedom? And a lot of it involves different ways of communicating with the team that we all learned in corporate. Yeah, absolutely. So I find the idea of the financial leanness that you write about really interesting, especially in the early days, because, you, you know, it's hard in the early days. You need resources, you need people, you need money. And yet that's what you're low on. So we all know the phrase, you've got to spend money to make money. But you think about it a little differently. Tell us about that. Most of these entrepreneurs didn't have a rich uncle to fund their business (laughs) and they didn't raise venture capital. So they had to use the budget that an average person working in a day job would have. And they they used a lot of um, different methods to stretch the money that they did have available. In some cases, it involved um, making decisions in their household, um, like one entrepreneur, Brian Abrams, he launched PMO Partners, which is an agency that places Um, project managers. And his wife worked and he did freelancing in his field, but spent most of his time on building the business. So that was one way of funding it by just kind of living lean and cooperating within the household. Other people saved up 
their money. Um, one entrepreneur, Anna Gabia, she's from Australia. She was a medical student and she only had $200 to invest in her business. I, I love her story because she was so scrappy in starting it. And she loved sketching on the side and she would sketch dresses and bikinis. And she decided to try to make her own fashions. She didn't have enough money to pay for the fabric for a dress. So she did the bikini idea that she had. And she found a factory on Alibaba and they agreed to do a small run if she could get some orders. So she put a picture of the bikini. She made one sample and put it up on Instagram and she got a thousand pre-orders. And so with that customer financing, she was able to pay the factory to do the run. And now she built it to more than 1 million. She has a team of about five people and she's expanding into the United States, which is a bigger market than Australia. And um, it's growing like gangbusters. But she, I have to say the first year or two, I've spoken to her a few times, she would always be at the warehouse packing stuff up herself. So she did have to do a lot of the roll up your sleeves type of work along the way. But then she knew that inflection point when she couldn't keep up with it anymore. And she started hiring people. Oh my God, that's such an aspirational story. You know, it can be done with very little money and, you know, some clever ideas and clever ways around things. You can get your business going. Absolutely. You do have to be open to feedback from the marketplace. She uses that method with all of her bikinis. And if people don't order their bikini, she doesn't die on the sword. And that's a hard thing because as entrepreneurs, sometimes we get our, our ego invested in an idea, but maybe the market isn't ready for it. Maybe there's some fatal flaw in it we don't see. And it's it's the being open to, you know, what are the big wins and what are the things that just aren't right for right now? Yeah. That That is what I think leads to success in stretching a tiny budget. Absolutely. So listen to your market. Well, you profiled an incredible 60 micro businesses in your book. You've spoken about some of the ones that stood out. What themes do you see in those micro businesses? Are there things that they're doing that are similar or is it each story is individual? Each story is individual, but I did see some common themes. And there's a survey in the book where I actually surveyed them on this. The, the, they basically all use automation in some form in their okay. business. It could be as simple as using a scheduling link like Calendly or Schedule Once. Sometimes it's quite sophisticated if they're a tech person. They know how to do all of yeah. that stuff, but they don't do manual work that they don't need to do because our, our time is our currency in a business. And if you start draining yourself with, you know, uploading PDF files or things like that, yeah. you won't have the energy for the creative stuff. They use contractors, a very large percentage use contractors, and it could be just using a bookkeeper. A lot of them have whole teams of contractors using uh, doing their social media or customer service or um, you know, product testing, things like that. Um, and um, one other interesting thing is they exercise. It was really interesting to me that the vast majority exercise and their number one exercise was yoga, which made me happy because I'm a big pet <laughs> yoga fan. I think it what it speaks to is when you have a very small business, it's hard to take time off. Even mm -hmm. if you've designed it, you're aiming for the four-hour work yeah. week. Who really works the four-hour work week? I don't. Yeah. I, I found someone who does five to six hours a week, but that that was the lowest. So if you keep yourself healthy and well and have mm -hmm. good mental balance, you can bring a lot more to the business. So I think th that that was very interesting to me to know that. Yeah, really interesting. Do you think that work's intruding on their, you know, downward dog poses? You know, you, you're busy doing something. You're like, oh my gosh, I, I need to write that on my list to get done. Any stories I mean, like that? 
it can happen. It can, it happened to me this morning when I was doing the downward dog at my hot yoga studio. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do think a, a number of them meditate. I, I do think that they have a more conscious approach to business and that they, they, they learn ways to fight that so that they can have some mental space to think yeah. about things like, how do I grow the business or what do I want out of my life besides the income from the business, because this is a means to a lifestyle. It's yeah. not just about trying to make more money than somebody else. And in, in, in a way that's inconsequential, but mm -hmm. making the money makes the lifestyle sustainable so that you can have a roof over your head. And if your children need to go to college, you can pay for it, or your elderly parent needs care, you can bring in the help you need. That it, It's a tool, but not, not the end goal. Do you see that as a trend? Is that something that more people are wanting to do? You know, that it's not work-life balance as such, but your life is your life and it includes work and other things outside of work. Is that something that's driving people to, to run their own businesses? I think it definitely is. I'm pretty sure that the Great, uh, the, um, great Resignation was a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, I know here in the US, a lot of people were rethinking what they wanted out of their work life. And um, we we had 5 million businesses registered for the first time last year, up from 2 million in 2016. So that's a pretty big lead. Yeah. Wow. A big jump. Yeah. And I saw another survey saying that people don't see the same risk in starting a business as they used to, in part because of what, what you spoke about, Karen, at the beginning, which was um, you, you can do it on a very lean budget. You're not betting your whole house or the farm, you know, you're betting $200 and you can quickly pull the plug if it's not yeah. working. So they've, they've tested it out and they can see that it, it's something appealing and it gives them a better lifestyle and more time on earth with the people that matter yeah. to them and that doing the things that them matter and, and fill them up as opposed to draining them. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think if you're leading a business, a key success factor is sort of being the face of that business and, you know, your, your ethos and your values coming out in it. Do you see that a lot in the, in the businesses you've studied? It's really interesting. They're, they're all over the map in okay. terms of how much of a front person the entrepreneur is. Some of them are extroverts and they really thrive on that. And then others are really pretty behind the scenes or, or they're, they're out there in digital, but you don't really see them out there speaking that much they're they're living their life you know one example brian dean is a copywriter and he started a company called backlinko where he talks about search engine optimization he created a course and he had, he had a team of about 10 contractors he manages the whole team on an app called notion he doesn't even have meetings he's a young guy who's a he's from new york but he's a digital nomad he was living in berlin and portugal and he just loves you know, seeing the world and he doesn't feel any obligation to run his business the way that companies yeah. he worked for ran theirs. And I think that's very exciting. Mm, it is. It makes you think there's a different way of doing things. You don't have to just follow the same old, you know, way that people have been doing for years and years. And I think you're right. COVID has made people look at how they work, you know, with lots of homeworking and people just get on and can do it anywhere now. You know, they can work from absolutely anywhere. I think so. And I think it also brought about a certain amount of fatigue where a lot of us were in situations where we were forcing ourselves to do things that were unpleasant, like commuting in a busy congested area or working with a person in our office who was really toxic. And I think because we had a break from it, 
we were able to think about, okay, do I really want to keep doing this with the rest of my life or with the rest of this year even? Or, you know, oh, it's kind of nice to have my kids home doing online schooling. I like having more time with them. Or I like having time to exercise and not be sitting on a train. All of those things became clear. And then when it came time to go back into the office, some people said, hey, I'm ready. I want to go back. Mm -hmm. That actually is what I want to do. I love the the culture in my company, work with great people. I make great money. Other people said not so much. And I'd actually like to do this independent thing. And oh, by the way, I actually started it during my free time during COVID and it's doing pretty well. So I think I'm going to take a bet on this. And the worst thing that can happen is right now it's um, a worker's market. It's not an employer's market is I'll have to go out and get a job. So who are the uh, business leaders that you would you know you admire you know i'm a big fan of elon musk I, I guess everybody is right he's a little controversial but i i love his commitment to innovation i think he's he's very inspiring sarah blakely at spanx oh i agree with that one absolutely yeah she didn't get a lot of support from the marketplace early on and yet she just believed in her idea and built it to this incredible yeah. Yeah. level. I like her message because I think a lot of entrepreneurs deal with rejection mm-hmm. and the world not really supporting them. And even if you're building a business that makes enough for one person to live on, it doesn't have to be a unicorn. You still have to believe in yourself. And a big part of success is is tuning out the people that, that tell you you shouldn't be doing it or you shouldn't do yeah. it that way yeah. or you can't do it. And for, for me, she's a symbol of that. I agree. And I also think she's got a great culture in terms of every time there's a business success, you know, which for her personally is huge. She's very inclusive of her employees. You know, they get something in terms of reward and she's very, you know, mindful that they helped her get to where she is and there's going to be another stage going forward. She is. I noticed that on on her social media, she's always shining a light on them and, you know, really supportive of her team. Yeah. So just looking at so I mean, she's growing the business from, you know, the the spare room in her apartment, you know, right up to the global massive business it is now. In what you see, you mentioned earlier on about someone's hired their first hire. Is there a point that you see that people run a business when it's just them and they're getting it started? And then there's a really difficult transition to make in terms of that next growth or scaling up stage. Is that what you've seen? Um, some people are just glad to hand things off. And it was always their intention. And then other people, I think in more creative businesses, their identity is wrapped up in doing the creative work. And it can be hard to bring in other people to support that. I I think Brian navigated that successfully. Brian Dean, he's a copywriter, but he trusted other people to do the work. Alex Miller created a, um, a website. He's from the UK. He's living in Austin, Texas now, where he helps people maximize their credit card points. And he could do that work himself, doing the writing of all the articles, but he has a whole team of freelancers doing it because there's no way he could keep up that output. Yeah. And that that takes a humility of saying, I can't do it all. This will be much better with multiple voices being a part of it. And, you know, he just took the leap. It, it, it really depends. So one, one entrepreneur, Dana Derricks is a copywriter. And he built a team of, he actually hired employees. He lives on a goat farm. So he's got kind of a lifestyle business and he didn't want to do all the work himself. He started writing books on copywriting, but he sold them for very high prices. Um, For instance, a a book in the United States would be $20 maybe. And he would sell it for 400 US dollars. 
Wow. And it, he based it on the value of the book and to his customers. Yeah. So then he needed a team to support it, but he did not like having employees. He just felt there was too much compliance and stress. Yeah. So he went back to contractors. So for some people, it's just not right for them. And I think what I took away is what's right for you is what's right. As long as you're not breaking the labor laws of your country, whatever you prefer. Yeah. So where next for you personally, Elaine? What are you going to be achieving next? What's your plans? Well, I'm taking a little bit of a breather because I just finished this book, you know, with the global paper shortage. I I don't know how much you've been immersed in that, but things get down to the wire with books right now because of that. And so I'm just enjoying, you know, getting out there, talking to people. I'd like to try to start doing some live events. I was doing that a lot for the first book, but I took the pulse on social media to see if people were ready for that. And we just really opened up here in the US across the whole country. So I think now maybe over the summer, I'll be doing that. Well, good luck with that. So Elaine, can you tell me about any entrepreneurs who are making their income from multiple revenue streams? Well, Jason Allen Scott is one of the case studies in the book, and he's an entrepreneur who is a podcaster, and he's built up a great career as an influencer in the meetings and events Mm -hmm. space. And he's also an app developer. And he also is an author. He has created quite a library on book boon of self-published books. And it's the combination of those revenue streams that has allowed him to break seven-figure revenue. That's really interesting. And it allows, I think, a a person to do different creative things and different skills, you know, keeps it interesting. And it's not you're just doing one thing all the time that's the same and monotonous. I think that's true. I I think we tend to get boxed in in traditional careers. And the beauty of an entrepreneurial career is we can lean into all of our different skills. And it doesn't necessarily have to make sense to a boss, as long as it makes sense to us how these parts work together. And maybe some of them don't. But if you're good at several things, why not incorporate them into your portfolio business? Absolutely. I love the thought of that, having that flexibility and being able to do different things that you might like doing, but can't find one role that covers them all. Take ownership yourself, you know, do that work. It also gives you some insulation against the ups and downs. Yeah, great point. Yeah. One one of the entrepreneurs in the book, James Taylor, is based in Scotland and he's a keynote speaker. And he, before the pandemic, was traveling all over the world to speak live on stages. He traveled something like 200 days out of the year. He pivoted to doing online speaking and his business really boomed the whole time. But what also helped him was he created a course And that's independent of the online and stage speaking. And that gave him insulation through the whole pandemic, because a lot of people do want to learn how to be speakers like him. And he's a great teacher. Well, that's great to hear. So lastly, I'm going to ask you, Elaine, to give our listeners three key takeaways for people who are running businesses or dreaming about starting a business. What three pieces of advice could you give them right now? The first one is to take ownership of your career. It's easy to hand over control of your career to authority figures, whether it's your parents, your teachers, your bosses, but to be an entrepreneur, you really have to own your own career destiny. And that comes with some risks, but it comes with some powerful advantages too. And surrounding yourself with other people who are doing it is what what it takes, I think, to have the reinforcement you need during the lower moments (laughs) to keep going with it. And I would say also, Don't let any gatekeeper derail you. If you believe in your idea and you've tested it with the market, there are a lot of people who think that they're in a position to judge whether your work is worthy or not. 
but it's all subjective and take it with a grain of salt and gravitate to your supporters. And then finally, I would say just treat it as a practice. It's like yoga or martial arts, two things that I enjoy doing. There's a value in just showing up for things. The more you keep doing them over and over again, the more knowledge you gain of all the different nuances and the better you get. And you never know when the breakthrough will occur. If you don't show up regularly, the breakthroughs will never happen. I know in yoga for a really long time, I wanted to do the headstand. And I I literally went to yoga for three years without ever doing it. And then one day something just got into me and I just did it. And now I love doing the headstand. And I think that's how business is. You know, you think, oh, I can't, I don't know how to do a good corporate sales pitch or whatever it is. And you struggle with it and yeah, struggle yeah. and you keep working on it and never quite works. And then one day you're just doing it and you're doing great with it. And so it's the showing up that I think matters. I think that's fantastic advice. What a great conversation we've had today. I'm in awe of the wisdom and insight that you've built up. So thank you for sharing so generously with us today. For our listeners, you'll find links to the books and the sites that we've mentioned underneath the podcast. And really the message is that even if the odds are stacked against you, it's still your money and your future and you should absolutely have a go. So thanks so much to Elaine Pofelt for being my guest this week and to you for listening to the Unbiased podcast. Thank you so much, Karen. Please subscribe to our show, give us a five-star review and tell the people you care about to have a listen. Making high-quality podcasts like this takes a lot of work. That's a fact. But not when you hire Copus. With our white glove experience, we handle everything for you, from guest outreach all the way through publishing and promotion. We handle it all. You show up to hold great interviews like these and build relationships with your guests. We take care of everything else. Podcasting is not just about the audience. Every podcast interview is the start of a brand new relationship. With a weekly podcast, you would build relationships with 52 ideal partners or prospects through podcast interviews over the next 12 months. Do you believe 52 new relationships could grow your business? We do. Why not contact me today? Jason at copus.com. J-A-S-O-N at K-O-P-U-S dot com. And let's talk.